Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker talks with Dr. Justin Turner about his editorial, Olfactory Retraining. What is the evidence? This edition of Scope It Out is brought to you by Carl Stores. Carl Stores enables anywhere care with the new sterile single-use flexible video endoscopes for ENT. As patient treatment continues to migrate, some sites of care are faced with reprocessing and sterilization challenges. With the new single-use endoscopes, reprocessing, transporting of dirty endoscopes, and repair costs are all eliminated. The video endoscopes provide a sharp image and can be used on multiple Carl Storrs video platforms. The choice is yours. Please visit www.carlstorsnetwork1.com forward slash ENT to find out more. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host, Dr. David Petker, and with me today is Dr. Justin Turner, from uh, Vanderbilt University, and we're going to be talking about his upcoming editorial entitled Olfactory Training, What is the Evidence? Justin, welcome. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, David. How are things in Nashville these days? Uh, We're doing great. Our our brutal summer is coming to a close, and we're just enjoying this brief period of uh, nice fall weather until the winter comes. Now, do you get hit with any of the rain from the hurricanes and things? We haven't so far, but we have had a lot of rain in general. But that's good usually because typically this time of year my grass is already dead in my front yard and it's somehow made it through the summer, so I'm happy with that. Yeah, see, I usually look forward to the grass burning out so I don't have to mow as often, but with the (laughs) rain that we've had, I've I've still had to mow at least once a week, so I'm not so crazy about that. So, you know, you did a scope it out with Tim Smith back in March of 2016, and it was the the same topic uh, as uh, olfactory training. More specifically, you talked about the meta-analysis that uh, you and your group published back then. It's a popular topic, and, you know, again, who would have predicted back then a pandemic, uh, a coronavirus that one of the hallmark symptoms is smell loss? So timely topic from that aspect also. This is also a little bit unique in that we're talking about an editorial rather than a research study. But, again, a lot of questions about the olfactory training. I have many. I'm just kind of having a hard time wrapping my brain around this. So tell me, what's olfactory training and, and how does it work? Yeah, so olfactory training is, is really based on the general tenets of neuroplasticity that have, that have been well, well characterized for decades. And that is, you know, particularly the olfactory system and the olfactory tract has an ability to regenerate itself and recuperate from trauma. And therefore, there's been a number of different studies that have shown that the olfactory system can improve over time after different insults and with practice. And so back in 2009, Thomas Hummel's group published a study where they utilized something that they called olfactory training. And in this intervention, uh, patients who had olfactory dysfunction or olfactory loss due to a number of different etiologies basically just sniffed different odorants twice a day for about 10 to 15 seconds each. And they did that, I believe, for that first study over a 12-week period. And in that study, uh, the group measured their smell function using objective smell testing before and after treatment. And they found that the group in the olfactory training group had a significant improvement in their sense of smell compared to 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 the control group that did not receive the intervention. Um, Now, there have been a number of different follow-up studies to that over the last 10 years, and all of them 
for the most part, show some degree of efficacy, and we reported that in our systematic review and meta-analysis. And really, this editorial was, was meant to sort of revisit that topic and analyze the data objectively, both the clinical data and what basic science data that we have to try to get a sense of where we're at with this intervention. I was surprised how much research has been done since you did your study in 2016. I actually stunned, actually, when I when I looked through your references and, and then started reading some of those papers. But tell us, what does that data show? You know, I, I know there's some animal models and, and some clinical stuff, but what's the thought process of what's going on? How is this working? And, and, and how will that relate to our patient population? Sure. So um, I'll, I'll start with the clinical data. So in our systematic review, and I believe that's been about three or four years ago, so, so there have probably been some studies that have been done since then. But in general, most of the studies show that uh, there is some improvement in, in the treatment group compared to the pa- to group uh, patients who do not receive treatment. However, the number of patients who actually have a what, what we would consider a clinically significant improvement is still somewhat small. So it generally varies from somewhere between 20 and 40 percent. So in our review, um, when we summarized the collective data, we found that smell function in the olfactory training groups typically improved by about four total points using the composite TDI score, and that's a commonly used semi-objective global measure of olfaction that's been used for many years. Now, to put that four points into some sort of frame of reference, the minimal clinically important difference is assumed to be somewhere around six points. Mm-hmm. And that's the number where a patient will actually notice that difference in their daily functioning. And uh, so TDI's threshold, sorry to interrupt, TDI's threshold, discrimination, and identification. So Exactly. So it, like, it, like it measures concentrated. It measures your ability to discriminate between odorants, your ability to identify different odorants, and it allows for a determination of the actual sensitivity that you have to to individual odorants. So it, it, it truly is a global measure of olfactory function that probably assesses both peripheral and central olfactory processing. Gotcha. Okay. And who are the, the, the most appropriate candidates? You know, again, kind of summarizing what we know are these polyps patients? Are these patients who've had, you know, car accidents and, and traumatic injuries, post-viral, post-operative patients? Should we be, you know, considering this for our skull-based patients and some of our bigger sinus patients? Well, so I think one of the challenges with interpreting the data on olfactory training is that the, the populations that have been incorporated into most of the studies have been highly heterogeneous. So they include patients with post-viral olfactory dysfunction. That's probably one of the larger groups that are included. Patients with idiopathic olfactory loss, uh, loss due to trauma, neurodegenerative disorders. Um, so most of them are a combination of etiologies. And so when you look at the individual studies and you see that a certain number of patients appear to improve, that may have something to do with the fact that it is a variable group to begin with and that patients with olfactory dysfunction due to certain etiologies may do better than others. It was difficult when we originally did that review, and I think even since that time, it still is really unclear as to which groups likely do best. I think we just don't have the study power even now with all the studies that have been done to to, to figure that out. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple questions about the, the, the testing 
specifically, are there certain odors? Again, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Are there certain odors that are, are consistently used? Are there certain odors that are better than others? Do you tell them to just smell your coffee twice a day? How, do you, how does that work? The initial studies use different classes of odor, so, so the, four different odors. I, I believe the first study was rose, clove, eucalyptus, and lemon. Those are odorants that represent different types of smell. Now, since that time, there's been variations of that. Some studies have looked at uh, different odors. Uh, some have looked at the use of the same odors, but exposure uh, more times during the day or for a longer period of time. Um, so I think what actually is the best approach is not entirely clear at this point. Can you go out and just smell your coffee twice a day? I, you, you know, Probably not, but I will say that there are one or two studies that have expanded the number of odorants substantially, and, and they didn't really show a big difference compared to just using four different odorants. So it looks like just you want to have some variability in exposure because theoretically you're trying to touch different parts of the olfactory uh, tract and, and, and stimulate cognitive uh, changes and different connections and, and, and things like that. I will say that the, the first study by Thomas Hummel suggested that it was actually the olfactory thresholds that changed with uh, olfactory training. But since that time, most of the studies have actually shown that it's likely more the ability to discriminate or identify odors. And we generally associate that more with central processing than we do with, you know, say, the peripheral olfactory tract, like the olfactory epithelium. And actually, we found that in our systematic review as well, that it was actually the identification and discrimination of odors that appear to be mostly affected. And do the patients know what the odor is? So is it is it labeled? Do they say, oh, this is lemon? Well, I mean, obviously, they're smelling a lemon. They'd know that. But if it was uh, essential oil or something along those lines, do they know what it is, or are they specifically blinded to that? So they do. What we do here, for example, at the Vanderbilt uh, Smell and Taste uh, Clinic is we have a handout that we give to the patients, and we recommend that they get the same four odorants that I mentioned before. But we tell them that that is not – entirely necessary and that, that really they just want to get a sampling of different smells from those classes. So, for example, if, if rose isn't available and they want to get lavender, we think that that's probably fine. I think different clinical centers uh, probably uh, do it differently, but in general, yeah, the patients know what they're smelling because they want to put that connection together with what their, their brain thinks it should smell like and what they actually interpret when they sniff the you know, tube or the or the oil or, or whatever it is that they're using. And then the then the TDI testing, I assume they're blinded to the odorant. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And is it the same odorant that you use for the TDI testing that they have been practicing on for the past three months? No. The TDI testing does incorporate individual odors where there's a sort of forced choice that you have to choose between which is which, but it, it incorporates a number of different odorants. And it's, a, it's a sort of complex stepwise approach for testing. It's not just repeating the same four smells. And I, I think that's important because there is a sort of test-retest confusion that can occur uh, with any study where you're just essentially testing on something that you've been practicing on for, for weeks or months. 
Right. I can't remember if this was in your editorial or one of the papers you cited, but one of the comments was that a controlled study is difficult for these patients. Why is a controlled study difficult? Why can't you just have a tube of water and make that your control? Well, I think it's hard to blind a patient from that, for example, because these the patients are not sequestered inpatients, for example, that, that you can blindfold and, and just have them sniff random odorants twice a day that uh, where you can uh, truly control that. They're going to go home, and they're going to have family members, for example, who are going to be curious about what they're doing oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and are going to say, oh, well, let me smell. And so it, it's very difficult to really have a controlled placebo study. And that's been one of the challenges with a lot of the published research. And I think a lot of the advocates of olfactory training would agree with that. I will say that there is one study that tried to mitigate that challenge. And in that particular study, they actually, as a sort of quasi-placebo group, had a low concentration olfactory training versus a high concentration olfactory training. And so knowing that they couldn't just have a blank and have right, that be a right. truly effective placebo, they tried to do what they thought was the next best step. And they did actually show that there was more improvement in the patients who received the high-concentration training. So that was some support for efficacy. But even with that being said, the percent improvement for either group was still generally less than 25 to 30%. Interesting. Now, you made an interesting comment in your in your editorial about the Fornazeri study, and I think that was the, the Doty group, where they talked about the effectiveness of olfactory training approximated or was worse than expected from spontaneous recovery alone. And in that paper, Fornazeri and, and colleagues cited a 33 to 67% spontaneous recovery rate. Now, What's the timing on that? You know, so so at what point should you consider to start olfactory training? If someone comes in and they say this has been going on for a week, is that when you start the olfactory training, or is it if they've reported it's been going on for a year? What do you make of that comment from that paper, and and how do you take that and put it into practice? Yes, I mean, I think in general with olfactory loss, we believe that most of the potential for any intervention is probably going to be early after the the loss occurs because that's theoretically where there's still some plasticity and some regeneration occurring. And so identifying patients late and using this intervention is likely going to be less effective regardless of what what intervention that you're using. And that's been shown in some other studies. So I think you want to catch these patients early. Unfortunately, that's often very difficult, right, because folks that lose their sense of smell, regardless of of the reason, they often don't come into a clinic to have that evaluated until some time past. They always kind of assume it's going to return. You often don't see these people for, you know, months or years later. I, I think the good thing about olfactory training is that it's not an intervention that you know, for example, has a lot of side effects. It's not a pharmaceutical. It, and so I think that the downside of doing it is very low. And, and so right. I think with, with, with that being said, I, I, I don't really think that there's a time limit on when you do it. You know, the study that you mentioned, I think one of the, the things that was in, interesting about that study is that, yes, we, one of the criticisms of olfactory training is that, in general, for people that have olfactory loss, 
there is a spontaneous recovery that occurs if you follow those patients longitudinally that's between, you know, probably somewhere around 20 to 50 percent, depending on what time horizon that you use. Mm-hmm. And when they did that study, one of the things they looked at was adherence. And so, you know, when, when, when people do olfactory training, what is it that causes them to continue? And in general, they were very adherent for the first few months, but then the ones that did not see a lot of improvement or subjective improvement in their sense of smell, they tended to stop doing the training between yeah. somewhere around three and six months. And, and, and so I think it's one of those it's one of those interventions where if you're not getting a lot of positive feedback from it as a patient, it's really easy to stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we see that in almost everything that we do, right? <laughs> With, Absolutely. Between yeah. <laughs> topical steroids and uh, saline washes and things. So, no, my last uh, official question for you was in your podcast with Tim a few years ago, you suggested that otolaryngologists should put olfactory training into our mainstream practices. Now, in your opinion, over the past uh, three and a half years, have we done that and, and have you done that? I think we have. I mean, uh, olfactory training really started out in specialized smell and taste clinics, and I think it's really moved more into general otolaryngology practices and certainly in uh, academic practices, even those that don't have focused smell and taste clinics. I certainly use it in my practice. That being said, I do recognize that it is not the holy grail of cures for olfactory dysfunction. The effect appears to be somewhat small. It appears to be highly variable depending on the individual. And I make that clear to the patient. I tell them, hey, Mm -hmm. this works really well for some people. There is some evidence that this is effective. It doesn't work for everybody, but I think it's worth trying. And, And I've had some patients that have had very good success with it and others that haven't. And again, there's not a lot of downside to doing it other than the time involved and the fairly minimal expense involved for the patient. You know, I think it's one of those situations where we don't have a whole lot else to offer, unfortunately, uh, at this point. And so I think knowing that uh, we have to use what we have that we believe may have some efficacy. And and I, I I think it's totally reasonable to incorporate olfactory training with the data set that we have. And, and what kind of time horizon do you give them? So, you know, if I start a topical steroid spray, I say I tell patients they got to use it for two months to see the maximum effect. What, what would you tell them as far as olfactory training is concerned? So I generally say three to six months. Usually I'll have them do it for three months and, and come back. We'll sometimes do objective olfactory testing. Other, other times we just go by subjective interpretation. And then if they seem to like it, we'll extend it. In some cases, even if it's not effective, we may extend it a little bit further, just depending on the patient and how proactive that they are. But I think that sort of three- to six-month period is a reasonable timeline. I think that you're going to have a difficult time encouraging a patient to do it for more than six months if they're not seeing right. any improvement. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine so. Well, really interesting stuff. But before I let you go, I've got a, uh, a trivia question for you. All right. So, I, knew uh, was, I knew this was You knew it was coming. All right, good. Good. So the word's out. Do you remember the cartoon The Jetsons? I do. Probably a little bit before your time, I would guess. And the uh, patriarch of The Jetsons was George Jetson. Now, the question that I have for you is, who 
was George Jetson's employer? Oh, my goodness. You know, I was really more of a Flintstones kind of guy. So, you know, I'm wanting to say, what was his name, Mr. Pebbles or Mr. Rock or something like that. You know, I think you stumped me on this one. All right. Well, it, it, the answer is Spacely Space Sprockets was the Mr. company Spacely. that uh, – Mr. Spacely, that's right. Yes, okay. And what so, all right. would make you ask that particular question? Have you been watching that at home with the kids or – Uh, You know what? I've got – about 95% of my brain is taken up with useless trivia, uh, and that's that's just a, a small uh, tip of the iceberg for the – I can't remember my, my daughter's cell phone number, but I can remember things like Spacely Space Rockets. So. All right, well, Justin, thanks very much for your time. Great editorial. I appreciate you doing this kind of research and being interested in this. And thanks to the listener for tuning in to the Scope It Out podcast, and we'll see you soon. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. Opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.